Hello, and welcome back to the Fearless Questions podcast, where we follow our questions to freedom. I'm your host, Jeff Blackburn, and today we are lucky to have Shannon Martin with us. Shannon, how are you? I'm doing just great. How are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you. You guys, Shannon is the, among other th- many things, um, is the author of the book Falling Free, um, subtitled Rescued from the Life I Always Wanted. And uh, Shannon, I hope we can just spend a few minutes today talking about that in your story. Um, and hopefully you'll yeah. be able to share a few things with folks today. I would love to do that. <laughs> well, um, Shannon, and I, Shannon and I don't know each other well, almost at all. Shannon is one of those, it's one of those deals where uh, as an author, you've probably experienced this, that I feel like I know you, but because I've read your work, I know about you, Corey, your family, <laughs> and you know nothing about the rest of us. So yeah, that's okay. I'm, <laughs> that's not a problem at all. We can, we can just start today and see, see what we learn about each other. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I do appreciate your time today. And I just, let's just jump into your story. And if folks have not read the book yet, I do hope they'll get it. And we can talk about that at the end, but um, you're going to go into a lot more detail in your book about this story, but we at least want to touch on some high points here for folks. And you and um, we'll just jump, maybe we'll jump in with uh, starting back in Washington, D.C. You and Corey yeah. were, were married at that point. What does, yes. um, how does one end up in Washington, D.C.? Was this, uh, <laughs> was this aspirations of you guys or was it something you, you know, stumbled into? It's it, like most of life. It's something we stumbled into. Um, it's not something that we had ever anticipated or planned. But yeah, you know, out of college, and, and let me back up and say, Corey studied theology. So we met in college, his degrees in theology. Um, so all of us, you know, both of us, everybody we knew was kind of surprised when immediately out of college, and we were married at the time, he got his first job on a political campaign. And that's something that, you know, as a mom now, I'm I'm interested to see how things play out for my kids, because a lot of times, you know, we see that one little change leads to the next and leads to the next. And before you know it, you have a career in politics and you're living in Washington, (laughs) D.C. And nobody saw that coming. Um, But, yeah, you know, my husband and I both were pretty interested in politics. We were pretty active in, you know, local and state and federal politics probably more than the average person, I would say. Um, So my husband worked for a United States congressman. He had previously worked on his campaign. And when he was elected into office, we headed east and made our home for not even a year. We ended up being there for not as long as we had anticipated because Corey then was promoted to a position here back in Indiana in the district office. Okay. So... While we were in Washington, D.C., I took a job working as a researcher and policy analyst at a think tank. And then when we moved back to Indiana, they allowed me to continue working from home. So really for a good solid decade, we both had very political jobs. I have to interrupt. When you say working at a think tank, there are so (laughs) many like little pigeonholed like judgments I make about people when I hear the word think tank. Now, does, does that mean you're a proper nerd or what is that? What does you that know, mean? I, I liked to think that I was kind of a policy wonk sort of person there for a while. <laughs> I remember when my boss told me that I had finally, you know, graduated to the 
the name Wonk. And that was, I guess, a, a big compliment over there. So yeah, I worked with a lot of very smart people. And I felt like I never quite fit in. I wasn't sure how I ended up among them. And you know, I had a very low level position. But yeah, these are people that literally, you know, they use their big, good brains, and they sit around and they think about things, and then they write about them. And then they send that policy to Capitol Hill. And, you know, work to kind of guide the path of, of public policy. So it was, it, again, it was one of those things that I never saw coming, but I, I learned so much through that job. All right. So now that I know you're also a wonk working with people with big, <laughs> smart minds. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Okay, I, so... Don't, I, I can't say how it happened. <laughs> okay. So you're working at a, a think tank. Corey's working on um, with the... Uh with a campaign or with a congressman at that point. And so, um, and so you said you got back to Indiana because he took a, is that in Northern Indiana already or? Yes. Okay. Yeah. That was up in, in the area that we're still kind of in. Okay. And he did, he moved back to the district. Um, I, you know, we bought our first home and honestly we found through our short time in DC that we just really weren't city people. You know, we always knew that, you know, we had both been raised in the country. We had an idea already of what we really wanted our life to look like. And we knew that we wanted our life to look like the, the quiet life, the peaceful life. We wanted to live in a farmhouse out in the country. We wanted as long a lane as possible. And, you know, we didn't have kids yet. We hadn't started our family, but we just had this, this ideal that we held in our minds of what we wanted, you know, the shape that, that we kind of wanted our life to take. So we did move back to Indiana. We bought just a small, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't super small, I guess, but we bought our first home in town in a small town. And then a few years after that, we did move not far away, maybe 10 miles away to what we considered to be our dream farmhouse. And this was the home that we thought, okay, this is where we're going to live for a good long while, maybe forever. Mm. Now, for those who don't know your story, th- this is the point in your life. Is this where you were the flower patch farm girl? Is that when you started it writing is. publicly? Yeah, it is. You know, when we moved to the farm, we did have two little babies at that time. So I believe when we moved, Calvin was three and Ruby was around a year old. So I had two really small kids, um, both of whom had come into our lives through the gift of adoption, which was another curveball that we had been thrown. But, you know, here we were, a young family. We were both still working. I was working from home. We had great jobs. Um, everything was kind of falling into place. Here we were on this beautiful piece of land, six acres, you know, the whole nine yards. Mm. And I did start writing at that time as Flower Patch Farm Girl. Um, and that's what my blog existed as for, you know, the next six or seven years. So yes, that is when that started. And what was, what was it you were blogging about? Was it, um, I mean, what was the impetus for you to start writing? I didn't, you know, it's funny because I would never say that I started blogging to start writing. So I did the, the very typical for that time, you know, I just, I wanted to document my kids' lives. I thought they were the cutest kids on the face of the earth. My family <laughs> lived a, a bit of a distance away, and it was just kind of what people were doing around that time. So, you know, I just wanted to to kind of take stock of what was happening around me. I wanted to be able to share my kids' lives and their growing up years with my family who wasn't local. So I just started blogging about 
um, what we were having for dinner and what was growing in our yard. You know, that first year on the farm, it was like this amazing scavenger hunt where that spring I would just go out and see what was growing. I didn't know, I didn't know what existed there. I didn't know, you know, how beautiful things were going to be there. And so I'd take my little point and shoot camera outside if I was lucky enough that Calvin and Ruby both took a nap at the same time, which was my whole goal in life. Um, I would take my little camera outside and just take, take pictures of this and that and, you know, load them onto the blog. And I wrote very differently then. Um, I would just write, you know, brief little kind of snippets of what was happening in my ordinary life. I did not write about faith much. It was just a pretty general kind of little diary, I guess. And it's funny because, you know, back then I would have never imagined that I, I didn't know that I really was a writer. So I never would have imagined that I would end up really finding my voice and then finding my story and then publishing a book. It was just, it came as a surprise to me. What do you, what do you think people were connecting to? Cause if you weren't trying to, that's I me, mean, it's interesting right. if you weren't trying to connect with others and all of a sudden, you know, you know yeah, it was fun to begin to connect and to see that kind of come to life. I didn't have any expectation though, you know, for the, for a long while, it was just close friends and family that were reading my blog. But you know, this, this blogging thing can take on a life of its own. And that's what started to happen. I think it had a lot to do um, with the, the home that I lived in and the land that I lived on. And people were drawn to this idea of this slow and simple lifestyle a lot of my early blog following came through decorating blogs. Okay. Decorating was something that I, I enjoyed. I still enjoy it. And so, you know, I would take pictures of our house as we were remodeling it and redecorating it and, you know, tearing the kitchen down to the studs and rebuilding the kitchen and all those little, all those steps along the way, people started to take note of my home and they thought it was pretty and they thought our life probably looked kind of lovely because it did. And, you know, I had this, this kind of unique story of adoption in the mix. Um, my kids are all of different races and, you know, it's just kind of a more obvious and noticeable difference that I think people were drawn to. So yeah, it's, it's funny to see how, how that has shifted along the way, but yeah, early, early in the days of my blog, it was just, it was just a lot of um, home and lifestyle. Okay. So you're really the one to blame. Cause I think this is where I first heard of you as Jody, my wife started following you probably somehow and was probably showing me things about your house. Now see Jeff, what if we did something like this or <laughs> uh -oh. couldn't we just move out into the country like this? And right. So thanks a yeah. lot guys. Appreciate that. <laughs> no problem. No, but, uh, so you, you were kind of documenting the story of your adoptions or the, yeah, your adoptions with, yeah. the, with all three of them. Um, and in the book you, you probably touch on is, is Robert, is he, I didn't know if you, is Robert adopted or is he not adopted? He is. Okay. Yeah. So we have four kiddos while we were on the farm. Um, I should back up and say, because we've kind of jumped to three kids. So let me explain <laughs> the third child while we were on the farm, we did, to start the adoption process again. And the timing of our third adoption was very interesting and meaningful because while we were in the process, so, you know, the paperwork was done, we were in that waiting time. That is when God kind of came in and began to rattle our cage about what we were really doing with our life. So, you know, my husband and I had built a life for ourselves and for our kids that was really centered around kind of these basic pillars of 
the good Christian life. You know, we, we built a life that was successful, it was secure, it was peaceful, it was centered a lot around our comfort and, um, you know, financial security, all of these things that we had been taught to to look for and to acquire. And we had done that. Um, we, we were living a very good life. We were living a life that many people would point to and kind of say, you know, those are good Christian people. They are living their life right. Mm-hmm. And we began to feel this tremendous tension that perhaps this was not the case. You know, perhaps we were missing some really key parts of the gospel and kind of the mess of the gospel that calls us to places of discomfort and places of even, you know, anxiety and fear and worry and, you know, where where life doesn't look so easy and where we maybe can't solve all of our problems ourselves, where, where we're forced sort of to, to let God really take control of our lives. And so we were beginning to feel that pull. Then we flew to South Korea and brought Silas home right in the midst of all of that. Um, when we arrived back home with him and he was a very heartbroken little 18 month old at the time, had a really hard transition into our family and just kind of rocked our world, all of us, as we tried to figure out, okay, now what, what does this look like? We hadn't experienced adoption quite in that way before. Um, I very suddenly lost my job through, you know, the work that I was doing from home through Washington, DC. And then a month after that, Corey very unexpectedly lost his job with the congressman that he worked for at that time, who very um, shockingly resigned from office. Wow. So we had two months there where it was like the world never stopped shaking for us. And that, you know, those two months were really the catalyst that led us to sell our farm, to move to the city, even though we were very sure that we were not city people. And then, as you mentioned a moment ago, we did end up adopting our fourth child, Robert, who was 19 years old at the time. Hmm. Well, that story, I don't know, I can't remember how much I've read online or through your book, how much it was about Robert's story, but it's just such a cool, if you guys, this is yeah. just one more good reason to read Shannon's book, but um, Robert's story is just very cool, the way um, Corey's job now as um, as a chaplain is just very cool and all this. Um Yeah. I'm trying to wrap my head around all the stuff. Like you said, that's a lot of crazy craziness <laughs> so happening much. all at once. Um, so if you if you knew the jobs, you were going to lose your jobs. Is it fair to say you may not have even had adopted right then? Um, or do you think I you would have been already deciding to you do know, that? I don't know that it's that's an interesting question because, you know, this is why I think God allows us to not know things. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it felt like terrible timing because adoption is a great expense, you know, we were, I mean, it's just tremendously expensive. And we, we were set up at the time to kind of handle it okay, um, with the jobs that we had. So it's so scary to even think of the idea of, you know, that perhaps we would have put on the brakes, but I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure that we would have been confident that we could have afforded it. And I'm not honestly sure that we would you know, that the adoption agency in South Korea would have been confident that we would have afforded it. You know, they have they have some say in those things. So by the grace of God, we had no idea what was coming. We brought our little guy home. And, you know, though it was a really difficult transition for every single one of us, he very much, you know, belonged in our family as kind of his... Um, his plan B, you know, we were parents of all adopted kids and we have no illusions 
that, you know, this was always meant to be for them, that we were always meant to be a family because they lost tremendously along the way. They lost deeply to be cobbled together into a family with us and a family that is full of so much love. And, you know, we, we believe that we were meant to be for sure, but maybe not, you know, maybe this, I, I don't believe that this was, I don't believe that God intends for, for tragedy to happen in the lives of these young kids, but you know, it does. And this is the world we live in and that's what God does. I mean, he takes our pain and he takes our heartbreak and he scoops us up and he shapes us into, into redemption. And so that's, that's what he's done for us. Hmm. Well, early in your book, um, you said that you and Corey, and this is a familiar thing um, in Jody and I's life, but, um, you said that you guys were starting to wonder about what you might be missing. You had this sense of wanting to be free. And there was a question you asked that you said, what would happen if everything but God were swept away? Would he really be enough? And I'm, I don't know exactly when in your story you guys were having that question, if it was before you got to the farmhouse or if it was yeah. at the farmhouse after adoption. Like, mm-hmm. how, how did that question, was it a slow emergence or was it kind of a sudden like, hey, what is going on here? You know, it was a really sudden shift for us. And so it that question came into, you know, came on the center stage, I guess, for us when we were in that transition time of waiting to um, bring Silas home. What happened was we blame David Platt for this. I'm not sure if you're familiar <laughs> with David Platt. Yeah. We were not familiar with him at all at the time. I mean, this was, you know nearly 10, I don't, not 10 years ago, maybe six years ago. Um, David Platt was not known in the way he is known now. He had not written his book Radical yet even, but he had preached a sermon series that became his book Radical. And we listened to that on the advice of some friends. We had never, ever sat down and listened to a sermon series online before. This was all foreign territory. But we did that. And I'm telling you, that first night that we listened to the first part of it, we just kind of staggered to bed silently like, "Uh uh-oh, you know, what is (laughs) going on? We were both feeling it. We didn't know what it meant. And, you know, God never showed us more than the very next step. So every step along the way, you know, we're starting to feel this, like, wait a minute, you know, we've been raised our whole lives as Christians, we've been taught to really kind of care for ourselves and our family, and that's kind of it. I mean, you know, Christians say they love everyone, we say we love the poor, we say we love our neighbors, but we really, really often don't. And we fell into that category of, you know, we lived in a really quaint community where everybody sort of looked and believed and acted the same, worshiped the same. We didn't know much outside of our bubble. And that's when we began to kind of, we were kind of afraid of it. um, And we were kind of compelled towards it, this idea that maybe life could look so much different and maybe God's more for us was going to look like less. Hmm. One, if I could just follow up on that for a quick second, when you, when you guys started to, you said you felt that sort of suddenly come, um, this kind of touches on what we get out here for those questions sometimes, which is why I really am interested is this when you're having that question of, you know, is there more, um, what would happen if we moved on? That seems to always be a very deep question of, do I really trust God with? Yeah. And I'm just, um, I'm wondering how, was it just the motivation or the truth that you were hearing through that, the sermon series that you guys were hearing that was enough to kind of give you the nudge you needed to take the next step or, yeah. 
you know, I wonder where you found the trust and the courage to take that first baby step um, away from sort of the American dream mm-hmm. version of what you guys had sort of come to. Well, you know, I think the Holy Spirit was was really stirring in us through, you know, through what we were learning, through the the Gospels, the the message of the Gospel, and really the message of the Bible, which is this plan that as believers we are called to spend our lives for the sake of the kingdom and not for the sake of our own security and comfort. Um, but to answer your question, where did we find the courage? You know, God was really patient with us. Okay. And 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 we felt frustrated along the way because, uh, for example, I'll give you I'll give you a clear example of what that looked like. We began over the course of you know months. I mean, it took us months to get to this to draw this conclusion that perhaps we should put our farm on the market and sell it. That took a long time to get there. When we did get there, we kind of had this idea like, okay, fine, God, we will do this, but we will stay in this community and we'll just move in town, which was a mile away. I mean, it was a tiny, tiny village that we okay. lived in. Right. So we were saying like, that's the that's the limit of what we're willing to do here. <laughs> we don't understand why we have to sell this farm, but okay, maybe we do. We'll move in town. And then, you know, a few months later, it was like, well, okay, we'll move to this other town, this other pretty small town. It's a little bit bigger, but we're only going to stay on this certain side of town. And then a couple months later, like, okay, maybe we could live on the kind of shabbier side of this other town. And on and on we went. And we were always kind of directing God on what we were willing to do, you know, what the limits on our um, peace of mind were. And in the meantime, it took that farm 18 months to sell. And so we waited and waited and like, what in the world is going on? You know, God asked us to do this crazy thing. Nobody around us understands it. Everybody thinks we've lost our minds, (laughs) but we have obeyed. So why is he taking so long? Like, is this just a mind game? What is happening? Well, you know, now we can look back and laugh and say what was happening was God was being kind of gentle with us because he knew where he was calling us and he knew we weren't ready yet. Mm. So we ended up settling in a nearby city, not far from where we were. This would be kind of the the city that we had, you know, you know, where we would go to eat out and shop and do things like that there was a side of that city that we really had no exposure to. And we ended up settling into a little neighborhood, a little kind of forgotten, neglected neighborhood on the wrong side of the tracks. At the time, we had a lot of anxiety and fear about this. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, we knew and we understood that God was not speaking to us through fear. He doesn't do that. Um, we just had this human fear. And we, we had the opportunity to, to continually hand that over to God. You know, this was one of those times where we were discovering we needed him. We needed his courage. We didn't have the courage on our own to do this. Um, But as he had led us every step of the way to this place, like every little decision, every little change built our faith and built our trust in him so that when it came to make this move, we still didn't understand why. We still weren't filled with what Christians like to talk about, like, do you have peace in your spirit or whatever? I mean, We had a lot of butterflies flapping around (laughs) inside of us, but we relied on God's courage. We trusted that he had a purpose here. And then we just took that step. Hmm. That's, um, it's so wild thinking about all your like Washington DC friends trying to figure out and make sense of what you guys are doing on your journey. Um, Well, we, we had the hardest time, not with our Washington DC friends, but with our local, like our immediate family really struggled. Oh, big time. And they struggled because they really love us, you know, and they love 
they love our kids. And so there was a lot of there was a lot of questioning that came at us regarding things like why in the world, you know, of course, God wants you to raise your kids on this beautiful piece of land. You know, this is kind of God's country. This is what this is what good Christian people do if they're able to. Why would you relinquish that and move to a city where there are gangs, there are drugs, the school systems are much less desirable. You know, there was a lot of a lot of that dissonance happening. And so it, it really came from the people who knew us best and loved us most. And that was confusing. Mm. Right. Especially, and it sounds like you guys were still making sense of it yourself. So it's kind of probably difficult to <laughs> to yeah. help others when you're still working through it yourself. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, along those lines, when you guys got um, into your new town, um, if you could just settle in here for a second, because you do spend quite a bit of time in your book, at least um, reflecting on this, but um, just on some of the real life nature of, of your guys' journey. So you had walked away from um, sort of the American dream life, the house, the farm, the mm-hmm. God's country picture, Norman Rockwell type stuff. Right, right. And, and you end up here and um, Corey takes a new direction in his career being a chaplain. And mm-hmm. and um, and then you guys say, okay, we're going to live in this part of town. If you could just comment maybe a little bit on the reality of, okay, yeah, we're going to take our kids into where there's tougher schools and this and that. But on a real life level, what kind of um, are the real questions that go through a parent's mind when you decide to go to an underperforming school? Um, mm-hmm. The anxieties. The, you know. Yeah. You know, that school issue was probably the thing that stood to derail all of this. I mean, that was the the critical piece that, you know, as it got nearer, as it, as it came time for us to move, and we lived for a little while in a rental home, you know, we had kind of a weird transition period between selling the farm and moving here. Um, and we didn't know, and this is kind of embarrassing to admit, because a lot of people, you know, this would be the top, the top thing that they were, that they were interested in knowing. We knew that the school system was much larger, and was, you know, a bit more kind of urban, for lack of a better word. I mean, just, a, it's a city school. Mm-hmm. Um, we knew that it probably had some issues that our our small, you know, top performing public school did not have. We did not, however, know that the elementary school that our kids would be going to right here in our neighborhood was a failing school. Mm. So at the time, it had received a, a grade of F, which happens rarely. You know, this isn't a good situation to find yeah. ourselves in. And we knew, you know, we knew that it was a, a school that was that had a lot of poverty, um, issues and just different things like that surrounding it, we did not know that it was actually considered failing. So at the point that we found that out, you know, you could kind of hear the tires screeching. Mm. Um, And it was like, okay, maybe everybody was right. Maybe everybody that, you know, was doubting us and kind of questioning us and skeptical and concerned, maybe they were right. Maybe we are really getting ready to throw our kids to the wolves. You know, that was kind of the message that we were getting from some people. And even people kind of at the periphery, when they would hear that we were moving to this community, it was like, well, that's kind of crazy, but you're definitely not going to send them to school over there, right? Well, yeah, <laughs> you know, we, we plan to. Um, but you start to question things like, what matters the most here? So, you know, we're on this new path of, of beginning to understand that what God wants most for us is to... Um, reflect his goodness on the people around us to love the poor 
and to defend the oppressed and all of these things. Is that more important than our kids getting what is considered kind of a classical good education? Which one matters most? Because I think there are times in in life, and I think they happen more than we like to think, where we have to ask ourselves those questions. You know, we like to think and we like to tell ourselves that our kids come first. Mm -hmm. And of course, in some really natural and obvious ways, they do. But I don't know that that is really, I don't, I don't believe that that is the wisdom of God speaking. I think that is often the voice of fear um, speaking and telling us, well, you know, you've got to, you've got to protect your kids first. I mean, of course, we're, you know, we're concerned about their safety and their well-being, but suddenly we, we began to take a harder look at, um, you know, are we going to prize a blue ribbon education for our kids more than our calling into this neighborhood where we knew we were being called? So then you start to think through, you know, and this, this kind of flew through our minds, but like, okay, so could we live in this neighborhood, but perhaps homeschool our kids? Mm -hmm. So we could still go where God is calling us, but we could kind of protect our kids from the risks of of this city school system. And we very quickly came down on, for us, no, that was not the right thing for us to do. You know, we came here to be neighbors, to live as neighbors and to live among people, a very diverse community with very diverse socioeconomic status, Um, a lot of the issues that come with a poverty-stricken neighborhood. You know, just imagine all of that. Imagine the addiction and the crime issues and the, you know, the really dysfunctional family issues. And, you know, along with some regular, you know, middle-class people like ourselves, I mean, it was a good mix of everything. But if we were going to really live and be among them, we were going to send our kids where they send their kids to school. And so it kind of became sort of a a no-brainer. You know, we had questions, we had concerns, but we just jumped in again. And we have been, we we have been amazed by the way the school system has been just a tremendous gift to us and to our kids. They're receiving a wonderful education. Um, We have the opportunity now to look at a Title I school and to understand better why these schools largely don't test well. You know, it doesn't mean that the teachers and administrators are not good at their jobs. It just means that the whole situation is a lot more complex. So yeah, we we went for it and we are just so Mm. thankful. Well, that's good. um, So many things are in that. First of all, um, people that are familiar with politics moving into that situation is even more interesting to me because you're you're seeing the dynamics on a lot of different layers. Um, but you mentioned somewhere in your book you, early on, I think, that it was that the surrender was the beginning of a better dream. And when you talk about getting into the schools even, it sounds like you guys were taking one step after another, like surrendering one, one thing that you were holding mm-hmm. on to after another. And real quickly, yeah. because I want to talk about that school thing one more time, but were you finding it easier as you went to, to make each choice, make each jump, or was it still still scary each time? I think there was often a little bit of tension and maybe you maybe you want to call it fear. I don't know. But I think I think that's okay. And I think that's something that, that as Christians we need to get more comfortable with this idea of discomfort. You know, we need to get to a place where we can see, you know, I as a human am feeling kind of nervous about this. This does not align with popular wisdom. 
which, you know, we read throughout the Bible to be very skeptical of popular wisdom. The wisdom of Jesus is very um, contrary to, to popular wisdom, but we feel that tension of, you know, this discomfort. And I think, I just really believe that that's right where God wants us because that's where we are forced to, to look at him again and say, you have got to help us. Like we, mm-hmm. we need you really badly right now. Mm-hmm. And like I said before, our trust is built through those things. So I think, I think we still often had every step of the way, um, some of those, those really human feelings, but we also had the advantage of our faith, which was being built and seeing the way every single time God asks us to do something kind of crazy, kind of weird, kind of hard, he comes through for us. He doesn't leave us. You know, he walks us through this. He draw. he's through this. He's drawn Corey and I closer together in our marriage. Um, he's, he's really caused some big shifts in the way we see our money. So in our, you know, our finances, our financial security, so to speak, from moving from the farm when we both had our political jobs to where we are now. I mean, our, our income was cut by 75% at least. So every step of the way we were having these major (laughs) economic shifts as well. Um, We're still just middle-class people, you know, we're not struggling, but it was just an adjustment along the way and forced us to reevaluate, you know, the wisdom of the world tells us we need to be looking out for ourselves, planning for our future, um, you know, us first and our kids first. I don't know that I see that in the gospel. So we're going to have to figure out a way to reconcile some mm. of these things and to trust that God is is going to take care of us. Yeah, no, that's helpful. Um, and along those lines, you know, it sounds, and I'm going to share my experience of what you were saying in the book, but correct me if this is not how you experienced sure. it, but it sounds like when you guys went into this part of the city you were moving in there seemed to be very much like hey we're going to go here and help people i mean if i'm i might be simplifying that but it sounded like through your story that it began to really shift for you where you guys began to see there was there was far more similarity to these folks yeah than you really ever recognized before is that fair to say you know i think it's it's pretty fair to say we we didn't understand exactly what we were supposed to do when we got here so it wasn't a situation where we were feeling like we are going to move to the city and plant a church mm-hmm. or start you know open a food bank or start a small group bible study in our neighborhood we didn't know exactly why we were moving here we didn't have a big um, plan in mind or an agenda however because of who we are as people and you know we've always been kind of these pull up your bootstraps and and do stuff kinds of people and i think doing stuff is important but i think there was definitely an element of surely we will be helpful to our neighbors in some way you know i think i think we are still always having to kind of check our Mm self-pride all the time and, and constantly, constantly remind ourselves that we are actually very small. We are actually um, no better than the people around us on any measurement. Mm-hmm. So we moved in and settled into the rhythm of just becoming a neighbor. Like, what does it look like to live as a neighbor? And in many ways, it looks like finding solidarity wherever you can. So like you said, we began to notice 
how how very similar we were to most of the people around us, to everybody around us in different ways. Mm. Um, and then, you know, the people that maybe we thought we were here to help, the people living in deep poverty, the people living in deep dysfunction, the people living in deep addiction, we just became their friends. And so it wasn't a, um, it wasn't a transaction. It just became a relationship. And, and we continue to learn that and get better at that as we go, as we stick around, as we commit to this is our place and these are our people this is our family now these are our neighbors and we love them so that's something that god continues to kind of refine in us is that you know we're here to love each other and sometimes loving looks like helping in different ways and and honestly sometimes loving looks like receiving help from our neighbors Hmm. so yeah there's just not there's not a playbook for this yeah and i and i probably said this like three or four times already but i do I really hope people read this because one of the things that was so fascinating to me um, that you guys said things, you asked this question in the book somewhere where you said, how can we show up and be the most authentic version of ourselves with these people? Yeah. And now you talk about them as your friends, as your neighbors, you're just invested. This is our people. But when you first showed up and you say, how do I show up as the most authentic version of myself? That's such a simple thing to say, but that, that actually sounds pretty exposing for for me. Like, how do you just yeah. show up and be fully yourself? Was that was that hard for you guys to step into, or did you find it find it fairly easy? Or, you know, I think in some ways it happened pretty naturally because the bar here was just set at a different place. Um, there just there's not a lot of pretense happening in my neighborhood. To that's like an understatement. Okay. Um, so it 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 became very natural to begin to believe like maybe maybe I don't have to be put together every time I'm seen in public and maybe it doesn't matter at all what my kids wear to school maybe they can just go ahead and show up looking like a little bit of a crazy person that's okay (laughs) um you know there wasn't this there wasn't this focus around materialism and name brand everything and you know it's just a it's kind of a different world in that respect from where we came from it was really it was a relief you know it doesn't matter we had always kind of driven kind of janky cars but suddenly that was very much the norm you know we we fit right in we began inviting our neighbors over for dinner whenever we could having them in our home whenever we could and it didn't matter i did i suddenly didn't care so much if my house looked perfect and photo worthy I didn't care so much if the dinner I made was going to, um, you know, get me compliments on what a great cook I am. And, you know, I love to cook. I love to cook kind of fancy and obscure food. I had to really reframe a lot of that and begin to understand, like, my neighbors don't care. They want spaghetti. They want macaroni and cheese. They want normal food. So in a lot of these really, it probably sounds kind of silly to say this stuff, but I mean, these were these were big shifts in our lives where it was like, we can really actually just be who we are. We can make mistakes. We can talk about our struggles. We can talk about some of the catastrophes that we have brought about in our life in the past and that we still continue to fail at. You know, all of these things can be put on the table because when you are sharing dinner with two drug addicted people who are in and out of prison, I mean, they are bringing their full selves to you and to the table. They are not hiding anything. Hmm. And if they can do that, surely we can offer the same back to them. Yeah, yeah. I, I will say, you know, somebody who's lived in, you know, I mean, right now we live in the suburbs and so much of what you're saying sounds, it really is counter counterculture to the suburban world, at least in the States, is that I've experienced in sort of corporate America and 
Yeah. And, um, and so it does seem, I think you're right. I think that's all people want is just the real, just the real experience with each other. But, um, there's so many, uh, walls that they get put up that, that, uh, scare people that they'll be right. rejected if they don't have the right label or the right card or the, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm enjoying yeah. this. You're using words like wonk and janky. And I'm just, like, <laughs> I gotta jot these words down to my vocabulary here. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I love you said something else in the book. You're like describing this well, where you said, you know, when we focus too much on how we can help and serve our neighbors, which is sort of the churchy thing for many to do, how can we go out and do things? You yeah. said we miss the fun of dancing with them, and I, I re- that really, I thought that was nice. The idea of like let's just go experience people and have fun with them and enjoy yeah. life, and and good things come out of that. Yeah, that's that's where the good stuff happens. Is is when I can, you know, I work from home and, you know, writing and doing those things, but I have had to learn, I'm still learning that if I can really keep my priorities in line so that when somebody knocks at my door, it doesn't mean, you know, I try to be careful to to let people know this doesn't mean that we are constantly dropping everything to do anything people ask us to do. No, I mean, that's not, that's, that's not the way we live. However, there are times when when I just know, like this initially feels like an inconvenience, mm-hmm. but this is actually the work God has for me today is to drop what I'm doing right now and to put my own agenda and my own plans aside and, and help this person in this meaningful way. This is how I can reflect God, God's goodness, you know, here in the land of the living. This is, mm-hmm. this is what I get to do. Um, but yeah, it's just, it, it's, it doesn't always come easily. Mm-hmm. Well, Shannon, um, what do you think? I mean, just as we, we sort of come into land here, what I usually ask people is just what are the questions you wish people were asking? I mean, you guys have this very unique um, – from the outside, it's adventure and fun. And from the inside, it sounds like it was adventure and fun, but it's also been challenging and exciting and scary all yeah. at the same time. But in, as you speak to people, and what are the things that you wish people were spending more time asking? You know – the, this experience has been adventure and fun. It has also been the hardest thing we've ever done. So we get to experience more of every emotion <laughs> is how we feel. And that can be a little overwhelming at times. So I love I love this question. And I'm just like off the top of my head. These are some of the things I wish the church was asking. I wish the church was asking, um, what would it look like if when we say, you know, we welcome anybody and they can kind of come as you are. So whether we're talking about our church buildings or our homes, what if we actually meant that? Because I think there's this this idea that, you know, sure, people can come as they are, but they have kind of maybe a two to three week turnaround before we expect to start seeing them assimilate <laughs> to, to what we are. Hmm. That's something very much on my mind just lately. Um, so what if it, you know, what if we actually meant it? What if we actually believed that people could come as they were and that we could trust the work God is doing in their lives, whether we see external changes in them or not? What would that actually look like if we if we welcome them in without expecting them to become, you know, carbon copies of us? Hmm. So that's my first question. Uh-huh. I also would love for us to start asking the question of, you know, financially speaking, and this is a hard one, like how much do we really need? Because I think there, we are so, you know, so much of the church and, and Christian people are, we just have our hands clenched around this idea of security and particularly financial security. And it just doesn't, 
it doesn't jive with the life Jesus called us to. And this is a hard one for Corey and I, and I don't, I, I make no illusions about that. I mean, we are constantly evaluating and messing up and then trying to do better and praying about it and kind of keeping our ear pressed up against the Holy Spirit. But we, we could probably live on far less than we're living on hmm. and really contribute to God's work in the kingdom in more meaningful ways if we were not quite so concerned with, you know, our nest eggs and our um, our plans for the future and even just our plans for today, you know, the luxuries that we, we enjoy having in our lives. So I think those are two um, important ways that we can evaluate kind of our the fear that we do have, you know, the fear of people who are different from us and what that might expose in us, honestly, and our fear of feeling um, insecure or uncomfortable. Hmm. Wow, you guys, um, I mean, thank you, because I think uh, those are, I I appreciate those questions, and I think that um, you guys seem to be doing a tremendous job of of sort of walking that out in front of, in front of others. Um, Not that you're, not that that's your reason for doing it, but your willingness to kind of open the the doors to your guys' life and and journey is um, it speaks to other people because I think it resonates with different circumstances other folks are are living in. Um, certainly, a number of the issues you brought up um, yeah. come in pretty stark contrast to this, like I mentioned, suburbia. Um, yeah. But even many of the um, assumptions and things we make about folks living in um, non-suburban situations, more urban situations, or right. or, or poverty, this or that, um, that it's not not all is what it seems. So. No. Yeah. You know, our I, I, I didn't fully clarify this earlier, but our oldest son, Robert, came to us while he was serving time in prison. Mm. <laughs> you know, he's grown up with a really hard life um, in, in generational poverty. We have a lot to learn from him and from people like him. I mean, I think I love what you just said about just kind of reevaluating the way we see others around us and, you know, maybe kind of just mention this at the very end, you know, I don't believe that God is calling everybody to the life Corey and I live, but I think it's going to look different for everybody. But I think, you know, the gospel at its core calls us to the same kinds of things. So each of us gets to figure out with, with the help of the Holy Spirit, what that, what that looks like for us. Hmm. So it, it doesn't mean that everybody needs to leave the suburbs by any means, but what does it look like to live these gospel values in the suburbs. I think that would be a really cool question to, for people to start exploring. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I wasn't suggesting you were saying that. I just know that the questions it's, um, it's challenging. Sometimes when you live in the suburbs or if, if you have any level of affluence, it becomes, you have a way of sort of, um, blocking those questions from ever getting into your soul. And so, right. Um, yeah. So hearing your guy's story is just sort of this like a uh, trap door closer to our hearts and minds about the deeper questions that we often avoid. So it's, um, yep. it's very much appreciated. So, yeah. well, Shannon, look, I really appreciate the time you spent with me today. And, um, for those who um, look, I've been, I love this book. So for anybody who wants to go get it, it's called falling free and I'll throw a link on uh, to Amazon or if there's somewhere else you'd prefer them, get it. But, but where yeah. can they do that? And where can they follow your writing now? And yeah, uh, yeah, you can find Falling Free really anywhere books are sold. So Amazon is great. Um, Barnes & Noble, it's in the physical bookstores as well. Okay. And then my I blog at shannonmartinwrites.com. Um, I'm also on Instagram. I'm probably the most active on Instagram. I love it. And I am Shannon Writes on Instagram. Okay, so no more Flower Patch Farm Girl? Is that, that no, was such a fun you know, name. 
It was such a fun name. It served me so well for so long, but it got really confusing <laughs> there for a while. So it, it kind of had to go away, but I still answer to it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Shannon, thanks so much for joining us today. And um, I hope everybody comes and checks your stuff out. And, uh, we'll talk soon. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. All right.